Welcome in to this edition of Broadcaster Hour. Roger Hoover joining you from Greenville, South Carolina. On the other side of the screen, it's Kyle Crooks from Gainesville, Florida. And in the middle of the screen from outside of Atlanta, Georgia, we've got Tom Hart joining us from ESPN and the SEC Network. And Tom, it's great to see you. How's everything going? Oh, man, just so much fun. I'm so busy. There's so many sports going on. I'm having a blast. <laughs> Not at all thinking about uh, the NCAA baseball tournament, your first regionals, super regionals of the World Series. Not thinking about that at all, right? <laughs> no, no. Actually, in the other room, I was just watching. Uh, I haven't actually been watching many throwback games, but SEC Network is on with uh, Auburn, Florida from last year, and looks like a bright, sunny, warm day in Gainesville, and. Well, it looks like the game could be going on right now, actually. So I'm missing more than just Omaha and the College World Series. I'm, I'm missing a little bit of everything right now, as you can imagine. So, Tom, you were calling one of the final games before everything shut down at the SEC tournament. That night, I believe it was Vanderbilt, Arkansas, right, when the NBA yeah. shut down. And, and it, I mean, Twitter that night was ablaze. I mean, there, there were so many stories going on at that time. What what was that night like and, and everything leading up to the SEC tournament, knowing that there was probably a good chance that there was not going to be any sports? Yeah, Kyle, it's a great question. It was such a weird night. I wish, I mean, it sounds odd to say, in, in the middle of that game, my producer gets in my ear and says, hey, man, we just got a major Woj bomb. The NBA shutting down. And I was like, and so... I'm working with Andy Kennedy and John Sunbold, and, and they're debating the finer points of defending a side ball screen or whatever it is, which was great, very entertaining. But I'm like, button with my producer, like, wait a second, he like they're done, and he's like, yeah, it's on the bottom line now. Um, we don't have a studio update, but it's done. If you want to go there, so I interrupted those two guys, and I was like, hey man, th th that's great information. No disrespect, but NBA's does. And then we just kind of like jaws were on the floor. You know, they, they understood what that meant. It's John Sunville played in the NBA for, for nine years. Um, he knows what that business is and, and what it made to shut down. And AK obviously uh, knows all aspects of basketball. So we could read the writing on the wall uh one thing i was proud of, we kind of had a decision to make are we going to spend a lot of time talking about what ifs or what's in the future or what happens with this tournament um even though we had more than educated guesses it was fairly obvious at that point um what would likely happen um or we could just call the game and in my head i said you know what this is this is the last game that people are going to have, and we're going to be, you know, who knew it was going to go on for three months plus, right? But um, it was fairly obvious to me that there would be no NCAA tournament um, once the NBA shut down. So, you know, people are going to get enough of what this means big picture um, in the days and weeks ahead. Let's just let's just enjoy hoops because we got it in front of us, and let's just – let him play ball and let's talk ball. And so that was my conscious decision to steer the conversation back to the game with a reminder here and there coming in and out of breaks. Hey, here's, you know, if you didn't know, here's what happened. Uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen tomorrow, but, you know, Mason Jones has 35 points, wherever we were at that point in the game. And when you come back that next day, that Thursday morning, there are some shoot arounds before everything gets canceled. So you're talking to coaches, you're talking to players. 
what was a lot of the conversation around like are, are we even going to be playing today what what is the feeling around that thursday morning before everything shuts down so i woke up thursday morning kind of in a sweat going wait a second you know as broadcasters we have to prepare for any game um even if there's you know you call it roger knows this right like you call in baseball and and there's a line of thunderstorms coming through the area at 7 p.m. and it's not going to stop until midnight. You can't mail it in because there might be a window. It might break up. It, like I always say that like one of the biggest rushes I ever get in as a broadcaster is when you sit in what you think is a long rain delay and then the tarp comes off the field and you're like, crap, I got to go on the air. Like, <laughs> Am I ready for this? So um, I kind of got that feeling, that sense of, not dread, but man, I better get on it because the games that night, had they been played, would have been played without fans. So um, as prepared as I am for SEC basketball and having covered the entire season and two games a week, I said to myself, well, I've got I need more information. Like I need as much information as possible. And I wasn't going to go to shoot arounds that morning. You know, at that point in the season, you know, everybody, you talk to everybody. There's very little new information that you can't get um, like right before tip and go say hi to the coaches, you know, an hour before the game starts, whenever the team arrives, which was probably going to be my plan. And in fact, the four teams that shot that morning weren't playing that day. They were all playing on Friday, those top four seats. Um, but I decided I needed to get down there. So I, you know, pulled on my sweats, grabbed a, a cap and I, you know, literally like ran down to the arena to make sure I didn't miss anybody. And, um, it was interesting. And Kentucky, it was all about, like, hey, man, how are you going to handle this with your kids? It's funny. I was talking to Wade. I said, you realize that everyone's going to hear every one of your play calls. And, and if that's the case, how kind? Um, so I got information from him. So when you make a play call, we know what it is. We know what it's going to look like. And um, I thought we had a good game plan of, like, how we would approach the games that night uh, find you know find out within two hours of that window that they're not happening. But I, I think it was, it was a great example and a reminder to me that especially when you're facing something that's going to be new or different or foreign, not only do you have to plan, but you have to prepare. And so that was my goal that morning to see, to get as much done as I could. And then the secondary plan was to, um, instead of being in the arena to watch those early games, to be back in the hotel room and flip around from the SEC to the ACC uh, to the Big East and see how other broadcasts were handling it. And, you know, there are no original ideas, you know, find stuff that I like and don't like and then put it into play that night if the games were to happen. So that was the experience around what, were, what was your last broadcast and what you were hoping to be your next broadcast. But let's go all the way back to your very first broadcast and why did you want to get into this field to begin with? Well, I love sports. I love going to games. Um, I was told I needed a degree and I was terrible at math. So I was like, yeah, I guess well, I guess we'll try this broadcast thing and see, kind of see how it works. I'd done a, I took a communications class in high school. We had a Sunday morning high school radio show that aired uh, over the air on a on a you know a big station in Columbia, Missouri, where I grew up, um, and I was chosen to host the first week. And 
pretty, you know, just kind of randomly, just who wants to do it? I volunteered, and ever we're going to take turns hosting every week. Well, lo and behold, our um, our teacher has a medical emergency, and he's gone for the rest of the semester. So we get a random English teacher, Miss Miller, uh, bless her heart. She comes in. She has no idea how to put together a radio show, the technical aspect of it, the assignments, what we should be doing. So she just kind of looks around and says, hey, who? what did you guys do last week? And I was like, well, I hosted, and they did this store. And, and she's like, okay, great. So, Tom, you're the host. So for the rest of that semester, I hosted this, this random radio show, um, and – uh, you know, I don't know if that's where I fell in love with it. I, I really fell in love with it as a fan listening to um, Missouri games and Cardinals games and Royals games growing up. So it was just an opportunity then to dip my toe in the water and see if if I had any sort of um, talent for it and then continue throughout school. And then from there, uh, even going to the University of Missouri, what were some of the steps you took there? And then as you started to get into uh, professional baseball, uh, how did you start moving forward? I got out of school, and I'm, I'm looking for opportunities. And actually, before I finished school, I, uh, uh, my best friend and I randomly, uh, not too randomly, his brother lived in Columbia, South Carolina. So we moved from Columbia, Missouri to Columbia, South Carolina. Um, I essentially knock on the door of the Capital City Bombers front office and say, hey, I, you know, I'm interested in broadcasting. Here's what I'm doing in school. I, I want to be around and learn a little bit. And, you know, reluctantly, the, the director of broadcasting there, a guy by the name of Mark Bryant, who works for the Big South now, he kind of looks at me and goes, yeah, man, uh, I've got two interns. I don't need another intern. Uh, thanks, but, you know, maybe apply some other time. And I was like, no, no, I just want to let me just come hang out and shadow you for a night. So I show up that first night, um, kind of force my way in the door. I show up and they get they get rained out. It was one of those, uh, you know, sit there for three hours rainouts. So as I'm sitting there, he turns and he says, well, you know, go introduce yourself to the broadcaster next door. Being, it's always important to make connections and network a little bit. So I go hang out. I talk broadcasting with the guy next door. Um, now becomes final they go yeah we'll play, have a doubleheader tomorrow i was like great i'll see you tomorrow so Eve come back for the next night rained out again so now i'm going on my third night i was like okay i'll see you again tomorrow go back the third night rained out again <laughs> so finally you know i've been there now three nights in a row i haven't seen one single pitch although i've been able to bend the ear of, of these minor league broadcasters and learn more about the business I finally get to watch a broadcast that fourth night, and now I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of that stray dog that, that, you know, they made the mistake of putting out the bowl of milk that one night, and so I'm coming back. And so on my way out the building that night at, you know, 11.30 midnight, um, I was like, all right, man, I'll see you tomorrow. And Mark's like, well, no, no, you get, I go, yeah, no, I'll see you tomorrow. And I walk out the door, and I showed up the next night, and I just kind of kept showing up. Um I convinced them to let me be a full-time intern the next year and call all the road games. So that was, you know, sink or swim. You just just do it. And one thing led to another. I got a, I get a full-time job um, that following year in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and happened to be in an ownership group that also had uh, franchises in outside of Knoxville and in New Orleans. And the guy in front of me keeps getting promoted. Uh, jobs keep opening up. So I follow him. Uh, twice, not just to uh, 
from Winston-Salem to Knoxville, but it, it was, you know, serendipitous that, that those jobs opened up at the time that um, I was able to make those moves and then and then slowly but surely get into the TV side of things. So what were your takeaways in those minor league baseball years? Because I did it for a season. Roger has did it for a long time. He just finished up his final year of minor league baseball. If anybody wants to get into minor league baseball, you, you really have to love broadcasting. You have to love baseball. It is a grind. What did you learn about yourself in those years of grinding it out in the minors? Um, I, I think the, the first thing I learned was what a sacrifice you have to make uh, personally to be able to succeed, to put the time in, to make it right. You know, it's, it's especially hard when it's your first job out of school and you got, you know, friends, weddings and vacations and, you know, weekends. And you're like, no, man, I'm I'm going to be in Greensboro. You know, I'm going to be sitting <laughs> in a 110 year old stadium with no air conditioning calling a minor league baseball game. Sorry, can't make it to the lake this weekend. Can't go to the beach. Um, so, you know, those sacrifices I thought were were very important because it, it causes you to constantly um, self-check. You know, is this is this worth it? Is Am I good enough to make it? Do I have less? The, the most viable thing I got in uh, minor league baseball is the fact that it's every night. So when you're a young broadcaster and you're working to be better, you can have the worst broadcast in the world on a Tuesday night. And you get to come back Wednesday and get better and, and improve and fix your mistakes and, and sand down the rough edges. And so what it taught me um, was to be uh, my own best critic and just uh, self-critique my work on a nightly basis and not only did I learn how to get better nightly but then you learn um, how to have an ear for it so you can get better within the game inning to inning uh, pitch to pitch especially if you can hear yourself overusing the same words the same phrases the same descriptors uh, I thought that was really important to, to understand and to realize uh, you're you're not going to have a better critic than yourself because no one else is going to be as familiar with your work as you are. So you have to learn what's good, what's bad, and how to make those corrections on the fly. And then furthering your career, doing some television while you were doing some minor league baseball, how, how, what was the process like of taking that next step in your career, reaching out to other people to, to do some television, to dive into some other ventures? What kind of uh, advice would you have for minor league broadcasters that are grinding through a season but still want, obviously, more in their career? You know, I, I got into it. Uh, my friend Carter introduced me to a guy by the name of Gideon Cohen, who's been my, my agent this entire time. And Gideon was at um, a place called College Sports Television at the time. And I was able to slide in and do an event or two for those guys, and it turned into more and more. I'm rewinding, actually, the first guy who got me going on the TV side was uh, was Bob Kessling. And I got to be friends with Stan Cotton, uh, who calls games for Wake Forest when I was in Winston-Salem doing minor league baseball. Uh, when I took the double-A job, he said, man, you got to reach out to uh, Kessling. He's a dear friend of mine. Whenever you get to town, I did so. Um, Bob took me under his wing in many respects and was was very helpful and and you know annual lunches if not uh, more often than that to kind of talk through the business and lo and behold one spring he says hey man um, I'm gonna be calling the NCAA tournament um, we have a baseball game a UT baseball game this weekend on CSS 
pour some on the curb for that regional network that went down. And uh, he said, if you're free, I can hook you up and get in there and, and do some, which caused a delicate balance to do television work and call minor league baseball at the same time. I mean, I, I was going everywhere from, you know, South Bend, Indiana to, to Palo Alto, California, and then getting on a red eye to rush back after calling a Stanford baseball game uh, to to go back, get back to Smokey's Park and call some Southern League baseball. Well, minor league baseball broadcasting, so much of it, especially when you're solo, is storytelling. How did you carry over a lot of your storytelling skills onto the television side? You know, um, even even before the skills of, of telling the story, what I learned in minor league baseball was was how to mine that story. Um, it was interesting. People would come in and, and sit in the booth and be surprised at the ability to call a game and work the laptop and Google a story or work through baseball reference or, or whatever it might be to to find the story to begin with. I mean, um, it. There, there wasn't a whole lot of pregame prep going on. I mean, there was getting the book ready, finding the stats and trends and, and interviews and such. Uh, but there weren't any deep dives on players, especially opposing players, until that guy did something in the game. And you'd look at the roster and go, oh, this guy played, uh, this guy played at LSU. Well, that's interesting. I wonder if he was on that national championship team. Or I wonder if he played with, with this guy or uh, under this guy. And then, you know, in the middle of an at-bat, you're working the laptop and Googling a name and then filtering through stories while calling pitches because it's radio. So um, I think that's that's the first thing is I, I learned how to mine for those stories in an efficient manner. Um, and I, you know, I, I picked up a routines that were interesting to me that I thought might be interesting to the listener in terms of, you know, keywords, buzzwords, uh, locations, teams, dates that you know, there may be a story behind. Um, and then when in the TV side, I think it took me a while to, to understand how to present a story in a way, um, especially, you know, now you're in TV and you got a partner sitting next to you. Um, that was more about sharing the story in a conversational manner, as opposed to just giving a history lesson about a certain person or place or team. Um, and that was a that was an adjustment because you've got to, you know, you can't just go on a soliloquy for four minutes and leave your analyst sitting out cold. Or even worse, you tell this incredible background of what you think is a great story, and you look over, and the guy next to you could give a rip, you know, like he's. And if he doesn't care about the story, and the folks watching or listening, they certainly don't care about the story. Even now, specifically for like baseball, how do you organize your stories? And uh, especially in the first couple innings, do you try to get a lot of those human interest type stuff out of the way so then later on the game can take care of itself? Oh, that's a great question. I think it, it depends on a lot of different, um, you know, a lot of different elements. Um, uh, and the key word there is elements. You know, what does the truck have? How can they support the story? Um, how important is that story to the game? You know, um, I'm trying to think of, of great examples. You know, what I've what I've learned is that there I almost tell my stories now through bullet points. But guy comes up in the first inning and he's the three hole hitter, um, whether it's a big league game or a college game. Obviously, he's a great hitter. So, um, you know, I'd like to focus more on not necessarily the stats, but his accomplishments. Here's what makes him so dangerous. Give the analysts a chance to talk about it. Let's talk about this matchup. Uh, because that's going to be a key matchup throughout the game. 
And then depending on the length of the at-bat, uh, the length of the game, the ebbs and flows of the game, um, then get into stories later. I, I think it's hard to explain sometimes, even for uh, producers that maybe haven't seen as much baseball as those of us who've been around the pro game where you're getting 140, 162 games a year, um, it's hard to explain sometimes the gut feeling you have for the ebbs and flows of a game, especially when your gut tells you nothing's happening this half inning. Um, either this pitcher is starting to lose it and he's nibbling and he's going to walk three guys, or, yeah, there may be a guy at second base, and while this is typically a scoring situation, the, the two dudes do up are terrible you know, they have no chance to drive them in. Um, this is going to be one of those long innings. So we have time to get into those stories. And and oftentimes I'll tell my analysts that, especially when I work for them the first, work with them for the first time, whether it's, it, you know, no matter the sport. Um, but I'll tell them, I'll say, hey, man, listen, if I ask you a specific question to follow up a story or to get you into story mode, that's me telling you, I've seen this movie before. We don't have to worry as much about the action. You have my permission and a window to tell that story. Um, and, and sometimes it drives producers crazy because they're like, wait a second, there's a guy at second. We got a, a one run game. Like, no, dude, just trust me. Nothing's going to happen. We've got nine minutes of nothingness. So let's get into this story here. And to me, that's just very much a gut feel based on you know, based on repetition of seeing so much ball, like he, here's here's what my instincts are telling me as to where this may go. Um, so to, to answer that story in a, in a, or that question a little bit more efficiently, I, and I don't believe in getting into those long, drawn-out, in-depth background stories during the first at-bat, um, but I certainly love to introduce them and tease them and say, you know, I, this is Roger Hoover and once you learn about you know his background, you're either going to love this guy or hate him by the end of the game. And then it gives you something to look forward to. And, and that story, by the way, might come in, in the other half of the inning when Roger's out at third base um, or left field or, or whatever it might be. Uh, it, just, it just depends on, you know, there's so many different dynamics at play there. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of nuggets in that equation to kind of give you a feel for when it's right to get into it and when it's not. And Tom, when you worked with the Braves and you were a clubhouse reporter, having that mindset of telling long stories on the air, you know, fishing for information, having to structure stories in a live environment, how much did that help you? That experience transfer over to your play-by-play -play side in making you such a good storyteller. Uh, that's, a, that's a great point. It, it gave me, it was beneficial in multiple ways. Um, number one, it gave me a better appreciation and a feel for um, what sidelines reporters are, are trying to accomplish when I'm the play-by-play -play announcer. I think that's key to understand everyone's job and, and have an appreciation for um, how tough that job can be. And, um, and number two, you know, kind of like you just alluded to, it's not just finding the story, but it's it's selling it and finding the right time to get it in. So when I was with the Braves, I was lucky enough to have people who ran the graphics where I'd say I'd, I'd text them during the day and say, hey, what are our sales elements tonight? And I would know that Home Depot tools for the game was one of our sales elements. So that's getting in no matter what. 
Um, and I'd go to the clubhouse that day and whatever story I could unearth, it might be about BJ Upton's bat. Um, then I would, I would send a text to the producer and say, Hey man, I got your, I got your tools, tools of the game figured out. Um, take it off your list. Okay, great. I don't even think he cared what the story was going to be. He was just happy that I took an assignment off of his list and that I had the content for that assignment. And and then I, you know, get back in touch with the graphics people and say, Hey, let's go with, uh, you know, BJ's BJ's batting average over the last two weeks um, versus the first month because he changed bats and that's going to be tools of the game. And then, and now you've got not only a great story, but you've got a dedicated time where it's going to get in the game and you pique the interest of the guys in the booth. So then it becomes a conversation. Uh, I, I could get Chip Carey and Joe Simpson, if I could get the two guys in the booth interested in my story to where there'd be a follow-up question or turn into a further discussion, now all of a sudden you have a conversation as opposed to an interruption. And this, when I took that job, I told I told the bosses straight up. I said, "Listen, who just drag it, and then um, you come back to them three innings later." Like I want to be part of the broadcast, part of the discussions. I want to be part of the stories. Um, and those guys in the booth did a great job making sure that happened. And that's that's what one of the reasons that made that job so rewarding. So when you're in that position, 150 games or whatever the regional sports network covers every year, do you have to go into that clubhouse every single night and try and create something new for the broadcast? Do you have something planned out going into the week? And how tough is it sometimes when players don't really want to talk? They had an 0 for 3 night the night before, and they're like, well, why, why is he trying to ask me all these questions? It, it's got to be a difficult balance, finding stories and having that delicate balance of how somebody's feeling as a person in that clubhouse. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, to me, I was never lacking information. It was more a matter of, you know, what do you share? Um, how do you, you know trying to find the right word but you know how do you respect respect those relationships to the point where um, those guys aren't afraid to chat with you or talk with you or certainly talk off the record because it won't be repeated and it may be something as innocuous as um, you know somebody shows up with a new pairs of pair of shoes you know that can be an interesting story but it might be a story that that guy don't want told you know like Hey man, if if you're gonna talk about my shoes every day, like, like think about it. Like if you walked into the office, if there was somebody near the water cooler who every time you walked in, they commented on your shoes, you'd be like, I'm gonna avoid this guy like he's the play. Like, bro, stop with the shoes. That being said, if someone comes in, you know, this just pops pops in my head, you know. It's around uh, Jackie Robinson Day, and I'm at Jason Hayward's locker, and or walking by, and I see a pair of UCLA spikes. Jason, what, what, what again? UCLA, the, what's up with the UCLA spikes? Uh, you know, I'm glad you asked. This is for Jackie Robinson Day. I can't. The, back then, they couldn't wear those shoes in the game. In many ways, MLB has relaxed those um, restrictions, but. But yeah, I mean, he had a special pair of spikes. He actually committed to Ted Savage at UCLA, coming out of high school in suburban Atlanta. Um, and now all of a sudden, we have a you know 
a significant conversation. It's not just about his shoes, but about Jackie Robinson Day and what it means to him and the fact, you know, what fact that he was going to play at UCLA. Now you get three days worth of stories. Um, and at that point, it's more significant than just the shoes. And it's, all right, well, can I get you on camera and let's talk about that was my approach. And, and in my mind, that's how things work best is where you're around to pick up information. You have more information than you could ever use. And you respect the fact that you don't have to use everything that's in your back. Let's shift gears to football for a little bit and talk about preparation that you do during the week to get ready for the SEC Saturday night game of the week. Uh, for you, as soon as one game ends and say, Lexington on a Saturday night, uh, what are the next steps for you to get ready to be in Knoxville the next Saturday for a game? It's a great question. I, ha- I just I happen to be sitting at my desk, and um, I've got, much to my wife's demi- uh, despair, I've got all of my charts from last year piled up from SEC to, to XFL. Um, so this was week two. Uh, that's going to be upside down. Uh, week two, two Arkansas. You guys saw an Ole Miss. Um, so this, is that right set up? Yeah, that's good. Uh, yep. Yeah, you're breaking up a bit, but that's good. Yep. Yeah, so um, – this is, a, this is an example of my charts. Um, it starts, I guess it starts um, really that Sunday. Um, you know, in terms of telling information together, figuring out what story. Um, and it's not just, it's, it, you know, it's not just what are the storylines or what are the major storylines. How can we tell this story? How can we get to story? What do we know about the story that other people don't? Uh, what do we want to find out? And how can we how can we support the story, which is a, a really important part of it. Um, to me, that starts by rewatching the game on Sunday night. Uh, okay, so to answer the question, to me, it starts it starts on Sunday. Um, Going back, rewatching the game. Um, even if I don't rewatch the entire game at that point, what what happened in that game? What are the bullet points? Uh, what are the major storylines, and who are the major personalities? Um, and then we have a Monday morning call with our production crew, where we share what we think will be important storylines to follow up on, so our production associates can start to pull tape, find key plays, um, locate key players. You know, I'm just looking at this Arkansas. This is week two for Arkansas, and I've got three different quarterbacks listed. So at that point, that Monday, we had no idea who was going to be at quarterback for Arkansas. But shoot, Nick Starkle's on the on the roster. He's up to deep. Let's find some stuff from Starkle's time at Texas A&M. Let's get some Ben Hicks stuff from S. And let's make sure we're able to tell these stories a little differently than they've been told in the past. Uh, so this particular, I remember um, I went back and watched SMU tape to see what Hicks did at his previous stop. I got him on the phone on Tuesday. I talked his background. Um, I talked with him about you know everything from uh, um, his favorite team growing up to his favorite players and the impact guys like Robert Griffin III had on him as a young player, which sounds random for this game. 
Uh, but it was key to, to sift through that stuff so we could pictures of him as a kid and talk about his background when he came out. To the, at that point, it's, um, you know, once we identify the majors and kind of chase a couple of stories and how we can tell them within the broadcast, then it just becomes a point of uh, getting my board set up, getting all the information in there that I can, that I think is relevant. And the beauty of doing one league all year is that I will over-prepare for a week to Arkansas. I'm going to have both of those teams a couple times down the road. And and by the way, if I end up having them in November, when I also have college basketball going on, um, or if I have them on a week that I'm particularly busy, I may not have the same sort of uh, time available to commit to that as much as I can do on the front end is a bit. So kind of with that, when you do have the opportunity to get to the campus and then visit with coaches or a couple of key players, how do those meetings go, especially with the head coaches? How much are you talking versus your analyst or producer? What are you really trying to get out of those meetings? There's no one blueprint we use. I mean, it depends on all of our personal relationships. Um, there are coaches, um, there are coaches and players I'll just use Jordan Rogers for example, that love Jordan Rogers. And there are a couple of players that hate Jordan Rogers. So if we're going to sit down with one of those guys that does not like Jordan Rogers, I'm going to say, hey, man, let me get started. Let me cover a couple things before you go, and then things will open up and, and we'll take it whatever direction we need to. But um, you, never, you never want to piss anybody off at the beginning. If you piss them off at the end – you know, so be it. People are going to have differences. Make sure we get as much information as possible. Um, typically, I'll lead just to try and, and make sure we're getting the, the nuts and bolts of what we need. Um, but like I said, there's, there's not a blueprint that we're married to um, because there's certain guys that walk in that, um, that really want to talk about, like, let's say Jeremy Pruitt wants to talk about O-line play. Well, we're all going to exchange pleasantries, and he's going to say to Cole, like, hey, man, I saw the clip on Twitter you put up on Tuesday. Uh, you know, why would they block it like that? Well, now all of a sudden, we're having a conversation. You know, we're having a conversation about ball, and uh, we're going to use that. That's great content. Um, even if we weren't planning on going there, um, we're going we're gonna to find a way to, to work that stuff in. So we, we do it differently every time. If, if there was, you know, if there was a typical meeting, it would be me leading it, um, getting some key questions out, uh, especially addressing injuries and Jordan kind of working in his questions, observations, feedback, Cole doing the same thing. Uh, but it really depends on, on who it is. It depends on how many times we've been there. You know, um, the best meetings we have, honestly, is when we walk in and, you know, Mark Stoops or Dan Mullen or whoever looks at us and goes, what do you guys need from me? You, you know my team better than I do, right? I mean, like, we're good, right? And it's not a dismissive comment. It's a, um, I know that I don't have to go through the basics with you guys. Like, we've, we've discussed that. Or... Maybe we don't we haven't seen them for a year, but we already know the basics of their program and the foundation of it. 
So then we can jump to other things and we can go in depth about something that most broadcast crews never have time to get to. And not only is that more beneficial to us, but um, it's more engaging to the coaches because it's not your typical meeting. You know, it's not a typical boring, here's the two deep, here's my wide receiver that is a possession guy, here's the one that can get behind defenses, here's my fast running back, here's my strong one, here's my cover corner, here's my nickel. Like, no, like that stuff is so boring to them um, that you've got to find a way to get that information and then turn the page and get to something more engaging. And and once you, you're able to do that, then then that's really when you get them to open up. And at the same time, that's when you develop a relationship where they know they can share things with you that either won't be shared on air or will be used in a background sense to help describe where their program is and what they're going through. And let's get to on air because when I listen to a Tom Hart broadcast, it, it seems like a lot of fun. It seems like you really get along and you're good friends with the guys that you do games with. What's what's that chemistry factor like? Do you like have to be good friends with somebody off the air to have that real true chemistry on the air? Do you, do you think there's a correlation there? You don't have to be like you know, you're going to work with people that you're not best friends with. Um, you don't have to exchange Christmas cards with everybody. Um, but I think as a play by play announcer, it's, it's, um, imperative that you know them, you know, that might mean that, you know, some warts or they know some warts about you. That's, that's fine, but you've got to know them. You got to know their likes, their interests, their dislikes. You've got to know where you can take them, where you won't take them. Um, you've got to know when and where and how you can challenge them. And you've got to know when to give them space. Um, you know, just like any, any working relationship, in my opinion, no matter your profession, like you need to know the person in the cubicle next door. There's, there's days where you're going to need their help and there's days where they're going to need your help. And there might be, you know, days where you don't even talk to each other, but, um, you need to know where they're coming from and, and, um, you know, what their likes and dislikes are. I, I'm lucky just because we have such great employees across the board at the SEC Network and ESPN that they're generally people that um, are very sociable. We like hanging out. We'll go play golf. We'll go have a pop. Um, we end up going to lunch together. And, and you know, you, you once you settle into certain um, – you know, certain repetitions with your broadcast crew, then you find yourself talking about the game when you're not planning on talking about the game. You know, something will come up Thursday when I'm watching practice with Jordan that I won't even think about until it happens in the game or it's about to happen in the game. And I know he saw the same thing I did because we talked about it. We're like, what the hell just happened over there? Um, and then, and then something sparks that that memory, um, or it could be ha- dinner Friday night, where you know you something pops in your head. And you say, "Hey, I forgot about this on the call this week, but you won't believe what we saw in practice yesterday." Make sure you know when the backup punter comes in because they're going to use both punters. There's a great story about you know his Australian background and, and the. 
Well, I'll transition to another thing that I, I, I like about what you do is, is the confidence you have on the air to to make pop culture references, to, to try and, and be funny. I think, what was it, a brawl in a Kentucky high school basketball game where the broadcasters <laughs> went viral? And I think it was an Auburn game where you, you referenced that on Twitter. And I think that's awesome. Um, where does that confidence come from to be able to to go to a certain place that maybe the whole audience doesn't understand the joke? But I think it shows a lot of personality that is necessary. When it comes to, to using a sense of humor or having the confidence to do it, I, I think it number one, you've got to have all the nuts and bolts tight. You know, if if you're going to work humor in or try to and you that's a coach's name, like it doesn't man, like you to make sure I had the nuts and bolts down um, because that's, you know, my personality. I couldn't just Yeah, you know, the key to public speaking, uh, no matter the subject, is like once you know the subject matter, if it's something that you live every day, then anybody can do public speaking. The, the guy, I mean, I just got new tires the other day and um, – you know, that guy who changed my tires could get up and, and give a speech about what are the right tires. Fine. You know, like because you know that you're never going to get out of your lane, so to speak, and you, you can bounce right back. But I just I tell people all the time, you, you better make sure that you have all the details nailed down first before you even try to go there. Um, because if you don't, then, then not only are, will people not respect the broadcast, but they just won't. So there, there's no point in, in trying to be funny or having pop culture references. or. And then along those lines, uh, on social media, you also have a lot of fun as well. Sometimes you get some good back and forth with fan bases that are watching your games. You're just having a good time in general with the SEC Weekend crew. Even you guys created some of those accounts uh, around some of your travels. Just how do you use social media as a tool in that regard? Um, you know, I, I use it as a tool to introduce myself to people who maybe don't know me or don't know my personality. I use it to uh, connect with, with fans out there, many of whom, you know, I'll never have the chance to meet personally. But, um, you know, I, I find that once people know who you are, they have a feel for who you are, um, they're more invested in the broadcast. And quite frankly, you know, fans, especially on social media, can be hypercritical and if you're hypercritical no one's had a perfect broadcast right takes about your own friendships has a whole lot easier than you would a stranger that's just human nature so my hope is then that uh, you and, and you're still going to get people that are hypercritical that don't know anything about you. um there are people out there that just want to rip on the broadcasters no matter what uh, but i i think they're more likely to give you a pass not just on social media, but as a listener, as a viewer, as a consumer, if they know you, if they know your personality, if they know who you are, um, and if that helps their enjoyment of the of the broadcast, that's that's the first goal. For you this year, you got to add the XFL to your resume. Just what was it like uh, stepping a little bit outside the comfort zone of all the SEC and college games, or even Major League Baseball you've done before? What was it like getting to do the XFL? It was awesome, Roger. It was totally different. You know, the, just the approach that our company had was completely different. It was all based on access, 
audio, um, listening into coaches, listening into players. It really de-emphasized the broadcast booth, which was a great reminder to simplify in all aspects of a broadcast. Um, and, and I had an incredible partner, Joey Galloway. We were walking out of the booth in St. Louis uh, one night, and he said, man, you are so lucky to have me as a partner. <laughs> and I said, of course I am. And, and I appreciate you every day, but, but why specifically would you mention that today? And he said, you got to understand, he goes, I'm one of the rare guys that I don't care how much I speak during a game. Like, I am more than happy to not talk for an entire quarter. And that's what was asked of us, you know, in many ways. Get to the audio, introduce it, get out of the way, don't talk over it. Um, you know, no one cares what we have to think about a play if you can hear what the quarterback or the offensive coordinator or the head coach thinks about a play. And so, um, you know, just approaching it from a, a totally different perspective um, was was very rewarding. It was and it was fun to do. It was it was, um, you know, fun to to get to new cities, different cities that I haven't been to to kind of mix it up a little bit. I love what I do. I love covering the SEC. It can be a little Groundhog Day ish, you know, when I'm going there for for football and basketball and baseball and the good news is I've got all my favorite restaurants. I know how late they're open. Uh, I know where I want to go after a game um, or where I need to go for a quick lunch. Uh, the bad news is I know all of those towns like the back of my hand. So <laughs> it's nice. it was nice to mix it up a little bit. Any specific parts of the access that you did have with the XFL that you would like to transfer over to college football, maybe the NFL? I know they're a little bit more buttoned up when it comes to that kind of stuff. But anything that you think could transfer yeah. over in the near future? I want all of it to transfer over, really, and and I was prepared to use some of those philosophies at the SEC basketball tournament, like we were talking about earlier. When I was courtside with Will Wade, and I asked him about his play calls now that everyone was going to hear them, and he's like, dude, I don't care. Like, we've got seven plays. Everybody in the league knows them. They know when we call scissors where the ball is going to, where we want it to end up, and what the options are off of it. I said, man, that's awesome. I was like, because all I need are your other six play calls, and we're gonna look make you look like a genius, and your team look great. Because now all of a sudden we can we can educate and we can share that with the viewers. They're gonna hear the play call anyway coming from over there. What does that mean? Translate that for us, and and that's our job. And I had the exact same conversation two hours later with John Calipari. Uh, I don't think I, I forget what the bracket looks like. I don't think I was even explaining behind the curtain, um, the opportunity to explain personal ships transpire on game day, what they mean. Uh, I would love to use all of that stuff. And 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 I think I think teams and smart to open the doors a little bit. Let me ask you this. Uh, working in the SEC, favorite SEC football coach to interact with, favorite SEC basketball coach? to interact with in those coaches meetings who do you got oh man those great questions um you know football they've all been great and, and they're great in different ways um about life i mean everybody's different every person now guys like john calipari and bruce, bruce pearl they're great in their own ways um but they both attack it from the same direction in some ways is they both understand the business. So they understand what our needs are. So, um, you know, 
Pearl will in the middle of shoot around come over and say, hey, one thing you guys might want to look at or what might make a great graphic is X. And, you know, he's constantly selling his program. He knows how to sell his program. You know, not just talking TV stuff, but that, you know, once he understands that coaches understand what our goals are, you go to John Calipari at practice, you're going to be entertained. Uh, same thing with Frank Martin. You know, you sit on the sidelines and, and watch practice with Frank and, <coughs> excuse me, and you don't know where the conversation's going to go. I mean, I can, I can name them all. I really, I really do enjoy them all. That's one of the most enjoyable uh, parts of, of my job is getting time with these coaches to talk um, just to BS about the game or, or talk about life or approach or whatever it might be. It could be the weather. You know, that's fine, too. And then uh, from a broadcasting perspective, all right, let's run all this information through the filter. What's the best way to use what we just got? Um, what do we put in our back pocket for the next time I'm going to have this team? What's most relevant right now? And, um, and what, what makes the broadcast best? Tom, I'll get you out of here on this, and thank you for spending some time with us this afternoon. Uh, when you look at your career, you're in a very good spot with all the – you get to do the big three sports, football, basketball, baseball, and one of the best conferences in college athletics, um, and you're on some of the guys – networks, ESPN and the SEC network, just how do you want to keep growing in your career, whether it's the process or how you call a game or other milestones, other big games you want to do that are out there? Just what do you hope the next five to 10 years of your career look like? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think for any broadcaster, it's about growth and, and the growth is not just your own, but also people investing in you. Um, and, and by that, I mean, giving you opportunities. Uh, a few years ago, they gave me opportunity to go to Omaha, call the College World Series. Um, you know, that was, that was a sign those decision makers trusted me and wanted to continue to invest in me. So to simplify, I think that the answer is just to continue to grow and that growth is measured both internally and externally. Am I doing the things that I need to do to be as successful as possible? Is there growth with the company? Are they trusting me to do new events, bigger events, better events each and every year? Um, because that means, you know, that means that, that you're going, you're moving in the right direction. All right, that was Tom Hard. We'll be back next week with another edition of Broadcaster Hour. Thanks for watching, everyone.